Hey listeners, we have a very rare opening for an associate sound designer mixer here at DeFacto Sound. That's my sound design studio and the studio behind 20,000 Hertz. To learn more, visit jobs.defactosound.com. This application window closes on May 22nd. Now, onto the show. You're listening to 20,000 Hertz. The stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. I'm Dallas Taylor. What came to be called elevator music is almost never heard in elevators today. So how did it earn the name elevator music? This is the story of Muzak, a company that changed the way public spaces sound. I like the term elevator music. I don't think there's anything inherently pejorative about it because it's music that's supposed to elevate people's moods. That's Joseph Lanza. He's the author of the book Elevator Music. His book explores the history of the Muzak company and the genre of music it promoted called Easy Listening. You're hearing one of those tracks right now. It's from one of their stimulus progression albums. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Back to Joseph. It was a musical currency that started in the 40s, but it went on and through the 50s. And then when music changed a bit, when you had more electric guitars and drums, the easy listening adapted to it as well. One of the most iconic tracks is the theme from A Summer Place. The music was written by Max Steiner, and the most famous recording of it was from Percy Faith. It's exactly what you probably think of when you think of music. Usually it was strings, a lot of strings that were supplying the the top melody, the vocal melody. I don't think many people really disliked it as much as people might want to believe today. It was just very sweet, pretty music, and you'd often hear it in actual pop songs. But this sweet, pretty music actually has a grim origin. The Muzak Company got its start on the battlefield. Major General George Squire served as the U.S. Army's chief signal officer during World War I. That wartime work later on led him to develop a way to transmit music across electrical wires. So General Squire founded a company to send businesses and residences music via a wired system. It was a great idea, but like many business owners discover the hard way, it rolled out a bit too late. When Squire was ready to launch his company in the mid-30s, wireless radio was already dominating the market. So he had to pivot. His new business plan was to deliver background music to restaurants, stores, office buildings, and yes, to elevators. The idea was that this music would calm the nerves of jittery riders in modern high-rise elevators. When the electronic elevator first came about, some people were afraid to enter it, especially in the New York area where you had these skyscrapers coming out in the 30s. So they called it elevator music maybe because they could hear it more because they were in this confined space. So from the ceiling, probably you would hear this melody. But those melodies were in hotel lobbies, restaurants, supermarkets, doctor's offices, all sorts of places. The music that seems so bland to us now was the stuff of the future in the 1920s. In fact, General Squire named the new company Muzak as a hat tip to the innovative film company he admired, Kodak. 
One of the inspirations for that was a novel by Edward Bellamy called Looking Backward. It was a science fiction vision of a wonderful future where technology does wonderful things, and one of the features was every room will be fashioned with a little dial where you can just turn on music of various moods. So that's what got it going. What we know is elevator music today, which is primarily these instrumental versions of pop tunes, that science really started coming about more in the 40s. America goes to war. Muzak was an idea born out of World War I, but the company saw a new opportunity during the manufacturing boom of World War II. Muzak wanted to use music to motivate workers. There was a guy who was a Muzak programmer who was also a very famous big band musician named Ben Selvin. He gave a paper to the Acoustical Society of America, and he was talking about what the ideal industry and workplace music would be. And that's where he said that instrumental only would be the best thing and not overly arranged. Ben not only suggested the type of music to be played, but he also suggested how this music should be programmed throughout the day. Muzak called it stimulus progression, a concept they patented. The music you're hearing right now is one of those tracks. Stimulus progression was a block of instrumental background music that gradually increased in pace and gave workers a sense of forward movement. Muzak claimed that when workers listened to the music, they got more work done. This block of music was then followed by a period of silence. Company-funded research showed that alternating music with silence reduced listener fatigue, and that, they claimed, made the stimulus part of stimulus progression more effective. It was the only company at the time, I believe, that was involved in the commercial world that was really thinking about the ecology of music. In 1967, they had a scientific board of advisors, and there was this doctor who put forward this paper called The Ecologic of Muzak, saying that there are certain types of music that are more beneficial for the workaday world. So there's public music and there's private music, and I think Muzak was trying to fill that void of what public music would sound like. Unfortunately, I think public spaces today, people don't take those concerns into account. The founder of Muzak was inspired by Edward Bellamy. Bellamy was a 19th century author and visionary who dreamed of how we would use music in the year 2000. He also wasn't far off from modern debit cards and online shopping, too. And oddly, those things are intertwined more than ever in a post-Muzak world. More on that in a moment. By the time I need to hire someone at my sound design studio, DeFacto Sound, I'm already slammed. That's why Indeed is super useful. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform. With over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed takes all of the labor-intensive parts of searching and matching for candidates and does them for you. Indeed's smart matching engine will read through dozens of applications and cross-reference them against each other. Indeed will also send out messages to all the candidates that didn't make it with just one click. It's not just about saving time, it's also about quality. According to their own data, 93% of employers say that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. And we've got a great deal for you. Right now, our listeners can get a $75 sponsored job credit at Indeed.com Hertz. That's Indeed.com H-E-R-T-Z. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. 
The sound of Muzak. It was the easy listening sound of mid-20th century America. During the lunar launch of Apollo 11, the astronauts listened to Muzak to calm themselves. President Kennedy even played Muzak on Air Force One and in the White House. Muzak was everywhere then. As a Muzak slogan claimed, Muzak fills the deadly silences. If it's intelligent and appropriately done, music can be massively powerful and it can have very, very strong positive effects on people. If, on the other hand, we treat it like a veneer and mindlessly cover the world with it, I think that's a problem. That's Julian Treasure, founder of The Sound Agency and an international expert on communication and sound. It's all about making the world sound better and I care about that because I listen all the time. And I try not to spend too much of my time going around being grumpy, but there's a lot of bad sound around us, which is just the kind of byproduct of stuff happening. You know, it's like the exhaust gas of living. We've become an immensely ocular culture. So everything is designed for the eyes and the way it sounds is way down the list if it exists at all. That's the impact of Muzak's legacy on us today. Muzak gave us a lot more than just the genre of easy listening. Muzak introduced the idea that music was to occupy and influence public spaces. There's a lot of frankly spurious research which purports to show that we all love music everywhere. We don't. There are many people who find it deeply offensive or upsetting. And music in public places can be, and often is, extremely inappropriate. Music is quite a dense sound. So we identify certain aspects of sounds. There's the pitch or tone, or the melodies or harmonies of music, if it is music. There's the pace, the tempo or meter or rhythm or whatever else the sound might have. There's the density, which is how much attention is this sound calling for? Some sounds uh, are very sparse that you don't pay much attention to them, like the background noise of traffic. Anything that's constant or doesn't change much. On the other hand, bebop jazz or a ringing telephone or a baby crying are very dense sounds indeed, and they call a lot of attention. Then you've got the variability of the sound. How much does it change? And the intensity of the sound, how loud is it? So we need to pay attention to all these things. Then there may be brands that can express themselves very powerfully through a musical environment. In retail, people always ask me about Hollister or Abercrombie & Fitch, and I think it's entirely appropriate what they do. They use fragrance, they use design, visual design, texture, touch feel as well, and they use sound, particular musical programming, to filter the people who go in there. I don't particularly enjoy that environment. I'm not supposed to. I'm not their target audience. So my deal with them is I don't go in, my children go in, choose the clothes, I dive in at the last minute, pay and get out of there. And that's how it's supposed to be. They don't want their store to be full of people of my age. When stuff can be delivered directly to your door, retailers and restaurants today have to create a curated experience to survive. They have to create a space where discovery and connection are the powerful draws to make you leave your couch. And how a space sounds is a big part of that experience. When you're designing an office or a restaurant or anything like that, you have to balance privacy against noise. I don't want to hear what somebody across the office is saying on the phone because in the office I'm trying to concentrate 
at dinner, I want some privacy for my conversation. So if I can hear them, they can hear me. And that's kind of intimidating and uncomfortable. You need some background noise in a restaurant uh, in order to mask other people's conversations. We can manipulate sound in amazing ways now with DSP, digital signal processing, to cloud or blur conversations from other tables so that you can't understand what people are saying by feeding back in slightly out of phase the signal that's coming from them and just distorting it enough whilst you can hear yourself absolutely clearly. Unlike the easy listening of Muzak's heyday, music in public spaces today is often faster and louder. Restaurant reviewers who measure and list noise in their reviews are reporting levels above 70 and even 80 decibels. Those levels can cause hearing loss over time. Things like open kitchen floor plans, hard surfaces, and up-tempo music all contribute to these noise levels. There's a phenomenon called entrainment where if you're surrounded by fast-paced sound, you tend to move faster and do things fast. You can get more stressed as well, by the way, which again makes it surprising to us that so many stores play jolly pop music fast-paced because all they're doing is speeding people up. And retailers know that dwell time, the amount of time we stay in a store, is directly related to sales, how much we spend. In other words, if they speed us up, we spend less money, they lose. And yet, so many stores are doing exactly that. If you're a fast food restaurant, I totally get it. The research shows that if we play fast-paced music and people are dining, they chew faster, they finish faster, they leave faster. Well, if you're a fine dining establishment, that's insane. If you're a burger bar and you want tables to turn over every 20 minutes or something, it makes all the sense in the world to do that to people. So right about now, you might notice that your heart rate has increased. Maybe you're feeling a little stressed or jittery or anxious. We chose that last track of music for that specific reason. We also have been slowly speeding it up. So memorize this feeling because it's happening to you all the time and you don't even know it. It shouldn't come as a surprise that sound in stores are thoughtfully designed to get you to buy stuff, while the sound in fast food restaurants are designed to get you in and out quickly. But there's also another place where sound and music might be influencing you, and that's at work. I talk about the four effects of sound on human beings. Physiological, the effect on our body. Psychological, the effect on our feelings. Cognitive, the effect on our ability to process, where that kind of office environment can cut our productivity down to a third of its potential. And finally, behavioral, the effect on our behavior, which is really significant. I'm not saying all silent, you know, going to see a football match in a silent stadium would be a very spooky experience. On the other hand, we know that in a library, the rule is shh, no talking. And we need to have more spaces like that where people can actually work in peace. There have been plenty of studies of noise in offices to show that noise creates a release of cortisol and noradrenaline as fight-flight hormones, makes people more stressed, it increases blood pressure, that's clear, and that's been shown many, many times in studies. And of course, chronic exposure to noise, and it doesn't have to be that loud, we're talking anything over about 65 decibels, chronic exposure to that kind of level of noise increases your risk of heart attack and stroke because of this increase in blood pressure and stress levels over a long period of time. That's clearly been indicated by a lot of research now. And unfortunately, many people are working in environments where it is exactly that loud.
Maybe Muzak was onto something when it created elevator music. Or maybe it just contributed to how noisy our world is now. Either way, we know that Muzak's intent was to create an appealing soundscape for the ears. Kind of like what a beautiful landscape does for the eyes. If nothing else, it taught us that sound has an enormous physical and emotional impact on all of us. And if used consciously, you can even affect your mood pretty drastically. It can help you study, give you energy, wake you up, or just make you happy. And you can use it as much or as little as you want. Twenty Thousand Hertz is produced out of the studios of DeFacto Sound, a sound design and mix team that supports ad agencies, filmmakers, television networks, and video game publishers. If you work in these fields, be sure to drop us a note at hi at defactosound.com. We'd love to hear from you. This episode was written and produced by Carolyn McCulley and me, Dallas Taylor, with help from Sam Sneebly. It was edited, sound designed, and mixed by Jai Berger. Thanks to our guests. Joseph Lanza, the author of Elevator Music, and Julian Treasure, chairman of the Sound Agency. Be sure to visit 20k.org. There, you'll find the transcripts to every single episode, as well as links to all of the music we've used and the guests we've had on the show. Also, be sure to connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. I love hearing from you on social, so don't be shy about reaching out. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.